This is Language Made Difficult, a self-embedding part of the SpecGram podcast. Welcome to our Linguistics Roundtable Telesymposium. I'm Trey Jones, and joining me today are the rest of the Ling Nerds, Sherry Wells-Jensen. Hi there. Keith Slater. Great to be with you. And Bill Sproul. Hey. And also joining us again on the program is Madalena Cruz-Ferreira. Welcome back, Madalena. Lovely to be here. Thanks for visiting with us again. Let's start off with some lies, damn lies, and linguistics. Our theme this time is etymology is fun. <laughs> well, that's true. I, I want to say they're all going to be true. Well, they're all going to be fun. but <laughs> Okay. <laughs> but only two of them are true, and one of them is false. Two of them are true, and one of them is false. I'm writing it down again. Okay. Just keep saying two true, two true, true two true. true. Two true, two true. Yeah. Okay. Item number one. The three words inch, ounce, and unchel, a calligraphic hand, all come from the same source. Item number two. Despite following the native strong verb pattern strive, which has forms strove and striven, is actually a borrowing. Item number three. The word tomato was borrowed into English from a Nahuatl word meaning the swelling fruit. All right, who wants to go first? I'll go first. I never go first, so I'll go first. Okay, so the tomato thing, I totally buy. It's this whole new world tomato thing. I don't know. So I'm going to buy that. And it shows sort of early insight into the whole tomato fruit vegetable thing. So I sort of like that. So I think that one is true. The strive, strove, strive, striv, struve, striven thing, whatever that is. Yeah, I think that's true because it comes from the same root as stroganoff. So it's clearly a borrowing. <laughs> <laughs> I really don't know what that is. So I think it's got some kind of animal in it that I don't eat. I'm not, I don't really remember, but I'm pretty sure. So the one that I think is a lie is this inch out. I never even unseal. Unchel. unchel. It's, yeah, it looks unchel? like unseal, but it's unchel. Yeah. Unchel. Oh, you say that with such authority as if you're trying to make me back off of my right answer. Unchel is a calligraphic <laughs> hand. I can do it myself. I'm familiar with that. Okay. All Whether right. Whether or not it's related okay. to the other ones, I got no comment. Well, it is not because inch and ounce strike me as more core vocabulary-ish, if that's a word. I think it is. Core vocabulary-ish. Unchel, that's got to be some kind of fancy thing. That's probably, I don't know, not related to those other two things. So that is the lie. Okay. Who wants to go next? Who wants to agree with me because I'm totally right this time. Shall I agree with you on one count? <laughs> <laughs> no, agree with me all the way, Madeline, I'm telling you. Just one inch. Agree with her one inch. Uh, I can't, Sherry. I can't agree with you. All the Hold on, Madalena. Yeah? Just Shall one I? thing, real quick. If you go next, I can't give you any hints. <laughs> oh, okay. She's confident. She knows but if you're confident, go, go, go. Shall I be very brave? All right. I think I am quite confident about this one. <laughs> I'll tell you what, Sherry. I'll agree with you with the tomato thing yeah. on that one. I agree. This Nahuatl thing is something that quite fascinates me because I'm not very fond of tomatoes or tomatoes, just with a little salt in them, that's okay, but it's not my favorite fruit or vegetable. But chocolate, I'm very fond of. <laughs> so I, I looked up a couple of Nahuatl roots and chocolate comes also from a Nahuatl root, meaning whatever, but it's pronounced chocolatl and mm. tomato in Nahuatl is tomatl. So that one is definitely true. Now, where I want to disagree with you is with number one, because this is what comes from speaking a Latin language. <laughs> we have the word uncia <laughs> in Portuguese. <laughs> Uh-oh, she's got special knowledge. Who, who, who let her in on this one? <laughs> I think I'm giving hints to everybody here, right? <laughs> Unfortunately. I was so happy when I saw this first uh, set of questions. I thought, I know this. I know this. I can answer this. Right. So number one <laughs> is true as well. Number two could be true 
also, right? But this struck me as a typical tray thing, right? <laughs> That's what we all think. So, yeah, right. Because it would sound too good to be false, wouldn't it? There's a native strong verb pattern, but, but, however, it's actually a borrowing. I don't think it is. I wouldn't know it if you had put this option in some other set of questions, but because I knew about tomatl and because I knew about uncia, number two is false. Okay. Very definitely. You're overlooking the stroganoff. Well, <laughs> let me go next because I think I'll disagree with both of them. And then Bill can break the tie. And Trey's guaranteed a point no matter what, right? Yep. <sighs> Having taught historical linguistics, I can tell you without a doubt any of these could be true and undoubtedly have been claimed to be true because, <laughs> you know, anything can come from anywhere and anything can be borrowed by anyone. So with that theoretical framework to start with, I think probably. <laughs> I'm going to say that the third one is really the false one. Trey, you said that the inch, ounce, and unshill all come from the same source, right? Yep. They do. They come from the OED. Okay, so <laughs> that's true. I think that strive, strove, striven, I think that is a Norse borrowing, actually. I think the original paradigm was Loki, Odin, striven. <laughs> I'm going to say that one is true. I'm going to say that the Nahuatl word, although... Madalena has convinced me that tomato is borrowed from Nahuatl. I'm going to say that probably it meant the swelling vegetable instead of the swelling fruit, and that's where you changed it on us. <laughs> All right, Bill, you want to break the tie? Well, I've been waffling over these. I know that tomato is from Nahuatl, but I don't know whether it means the swelling fruit or not. It could because it gives me gas. And so we would say that's really the swelling fruit. It's fruit that causes one to swell. So I'll just go ahead and go with that because I do know it's Nawat. Inch, ounce, and unseal. And by the way, I'm not going to say unchul because unchul sounds like comic sans. All right. It's unseal flows just like ounce, which I'm going to decide is actually named after the cat called an ounce. And I guess they can be a number of inches long. So I'm going to say those can all come from the same source. Number two, I could see it being from Norse. The thing is, it's got this strut at the front. Mm -hmm. So it's probably Germanic, which decreases the chance that it's a borrowing because it's obviously not Tagalog or Chukchi or something like that. But Bill, the Norse words are Germanic, too. That's no problem. I know that. That's the problem with it. My logic is that (laughs) the total set of possible borrowings has been dramatically reduced by the STR at the beginning. It hasn't eliminated enough yet, but it's decreased the chance it's a borrowing. Okay. So I'm going to say two is the false one. Okay. Since we had the most votes for number two, let's start there. So strive with the form strove and striven is a borrowing. Ooh, is it Norse? No. <laughs> oh, it's from Old French, believe it or not. Oh, that's just wrong. It had an e at the beginning. It was originally estrive, meaning to quarrel, dispute, resist, or struggle. Madalena, you were supposed to know that. Yeah. Oh, I know. I know. <laughs> I'm drinking in shame. <laughs> And it became a strong verb by rhyming association with words like drive and dive. Sure. Yep. That's just plain old analogy. Yep. So it's like arrive. <laughs> arrive, arrove, arriven. Yeah, arriven. absolutely. Absolutely. Next question. Uh, so I would say once that E eroded off the front, 
maybe it made it look a little more Germanic and the people were, you know, ah, it must be that way. Yeah, yeah, yeah absolutely. Right? Sure. As opposed to arrive, which looks very French. Hasn't had the E eroded Doesn't off look of very it. Germanic. Yeah. But if it had the A eroded off the front, then it'd be Rith. And you'd be like, Riven, Rove, sure. No, no, it was obviously something like H-R-I-F. Hrith. <laughs> and then the French couldn't pronounce it and said, Arrive. And there we go. All right. That's not what actually happened, but it is not my fault when English does not develop the way it should. Understood. <laughs> Especially in the past. <laughs> okay. Item number one. So inch, which is a twelfth of a foot, ounce, which is a sixteenth of a pound, and uncial, the calligraphic hand, do in fact all come from Latin uncia. What does that mean in Portuguese? Uncia. It means inch. Oh, okay. Oh. Yeah. Mm. Outrageous. <laughs> yeah. Beautiful. Beautiful. A beautiful language. I know. I know. I love it too. Yeah. Apparently, the original Latin meaning was a twelfth part. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. So, uncial possibly refers to letters that are an inch tall. And that's mm. how the calligraphic yeah, hand got its name. No, that's it's crazy. One, isn't it? The uncial or uncial. Yeah. Quite big. Yeah. 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 And so, uncial was also a bronze coin of ancient Rome that was the 12th part of an ass, which is a copper coin. But which part? <laughs> which part of the ass? It's only spelled with one S, so it's a different word there. Oh, okay. Okay. And it had the nominal weight of a pound of 12 ounces. Mm-hmm. So that's how the ounce came out of that. And then somehow somebody along the way decided pound should have 16 ounces. I don't know what that's all about. That's the English. So what's the true story about tomatoes? Yes. Yes. I'm curious. I like tomatoes. I think we should call it tomatoes from now on. Tomatoes. Yeah. So in fact, tomatoes. I'll use the anglicized pronunciation there of tomato is in fact the original source, but. Oh, we got it from Spanish. I knew that. That's correct. (laughs) (laughs) I forgot. (laughs) Tomato was borrowed into English from Spanish or arguably Portuguese. Of course it was from Portuguese. Which borrowed it from Nahuatl. And the original was tomato or tomato. And so I thought I was go ahead and be as tricky as you always accuse me of. But then while you were choosing it, <laughs> you were accusing me of being even more tricky. Like it's the swelling vegetable, <laughs> not the swelling fruit. <laughs> right, right. It, it's a fruit. The tomato is a fruit, really. Yeah, just call it vegetables. That's funny. totally debatable. Yeah. Actually, I thought the word in Nahuatl originally meant something like chili pepper that never got hot or something like that. <laughs> Not according to my dictionary. <laughs> or he throws it. I think it rather means he throws it. <laughs> he throws it. No, that's in Spain, isn't it? Oh, that's right. There is that big tomato throwing festival. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Right, right. There is. Yes, yes. <laughs> oh, I'm very unhappy now. Oh. But I got one right. It's the first time in months. <laughs> yeah. Thank you. Thank you. That's coming. So the good news is Keith is still in last place. <laughs> Yay. <laughs> but he's rapidly moving away from chance with 42%. Bill and the guests collectively are tied at 47%. Sherry has 53%. And I have 58%. Woohoo. Oh. So I could pass somebody next time. Is that correct? Uh, it's conceivable. Do the math real quick. If I'm right and they're wrong. Woohoo. If you were right and Bill was wrong... Which has never happened before. Then you'd be tied. So you'd catch up. That would be a moral victory. (laughs) (laughs) All right. So I guess that'll do it for Lies, Damn Lies, and Linguistics. So we'll be back after a word from our sponsor to discuss some linguistic news. Have you that which it takes? Are you canning to work ungrammatical paradigms yet predictable into your speech casual? 
The Grammado Chaoticon is looking for talented yet bitter linguists who have been let down by academia to join our underground alliance of linguists, philologists, and polyglots, and our self-appointed task of encouraging arbitrary and capricious change both in Big L language and among languages worldwide. You can't fool all the people all the time, but you can fool some the people some the time. Join us. The Grammado Chaoticon is an equal opportunity exploiter. All qualified applicants will receive consideration for employment without regard to theoretical orientation, academic origin, belief in universal grammar, number of genders in mother tongue, or student loan status. Welcome back. We now bring you some very important linguistic news. When I was a much younger child than I am now, I learned that a period at the end of a sentence simply meant that that particular sentence was over and then we could rest a while before beginning our next sentence. It was the simple truth. I believed in it with no mark of question. And I loved this partly because of Victor Borga's audio punctuation. <laughs> and I thought the period, the period was the funniest one. And really, it had to be true because without it, that whole routine would not have been nearly as funny. So I didn't question this. I put periods at the end of my sentence fragments in composition classes to show my teacher that they were not sentence fragments. And I put even periods at the ends of my sentence trees in graduate school to show that they were actually complete and done and that there was nothing left out and I hadn't made any mistakes. And you guys admit it. You've done this too. You draw your sentence tree and then you wait, 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 put your little period right there at the end because it just seemed like the sentence required that to be finished. Mm -hmm. It's true. Yeah, I agree. It's true. I've yes. done it in more now than one ben, language. <laughs> so now Ben Greer gives me the word that periods have fallen out of favor. This article lets us know that among college students, the period is used only 39% of the time in texts and only 45% of the time in online chats. I don't know if we should argue about what a sentence without a period means. Probably that's pointless. But once discarded, the period then seems to have come back to indicate anger. So think about it maybe as a profoundly squished up smiley face thing. <laughs> <laughs> I do have more to say about this period. But first off, what do you guys think? Is our humble little friend developing an aggressive streak? Or is Ben Crare just dotty? Mm. <laughs> For me, texting is not a different medium with its own rules. It's just another channel for normal written communication because I avoid it as much as possible. And I find that it's actually slower for me to use abbreviations and drop punctuation and use lowercase and all that stuff because then I have to stop and think about how I'm writing instead of what I'm trying to say, right? So to me, while this is an utterly foreign land, I can still confidently say that the premise is wrong. And I don't mean factually wrong. I mean morally wrong. <laughs> it is wrong, wrong, wrong. It should not be this way. <laughs> However, <laughs> wait, I just want to say I feel the same because I, I, like you, only text because it's necessary. And that's just another way to send written messages. It's not a way to be shorter or quicker or anything like that. Yeah. yeah. <sighs> this is going to be a disputatious point, but I'm suspecting that this is all a side effect of uptalk. <laughs> <laughs> because when a lot of people learn about periods, the teacher does a kind of exaggerated pronunciation with falling intonation to sort of emphasize to the kids what the period is for, right? So mm -hmm. this happened on Tuesday. No, the goat was in the catapult, you know, that kind of thing. <laughs> so if you spend most of your time in a conversation going up at the ends of your sentences as a mark that you're being politely hesitant and maybe you're not done yet and the other person shouldn't interrupt you and, you know, that kind of thing, <laughs> then when you, you actually instead do this marked choice and just 
plummet at the end and sort of land firmly at, you know, on low intonation at the end of your sentence, it comes across as pushy. See, I think that this is totally true as a would-be native texter, even though perhaps not. And it has to do with the period being on a different screen. So this is how this comes about. If I come home and my kids are gone and the goat is, in fact, in the catapult, and I have to text my children about this, I will go, children, the goat is in the catapult, and I will switch screens and I'll go, bam, on the period. And it means, it means <laughs> I've had enough. It means it's not okay. Come home, let the goat out of the catapult. Or if I just come home and, and I text it without the switching screens to hit the period, the goat's in the catapult, it just means, huh, observance. <laughs> so it's, it's definitely a speech act thing. Without it, it's an I observe that. And uh, with it, it's emphatic. You have an iPhone, right? Yeah. I wonder if there are dialects between iPhone users and Android phone users, <clears throat> because the period on my phone is right there next to the space bar. Because of having to switch the screen, yeah. Right. I, was... I don't, I don't mm -hmm. switch screens or anything. It's no extra work. Yeah. Exactly. Mine is right there. Yeah. Oh, I'll see. Switch the screen, yeah. And most people I text with don't have an iPhone. So the, I presume they would have the period in the same screen. But they don't use the period anyway. <laughs> mm. You know, so that's another disputatious point, I think, there. Well, I want to be disputatious back at you because I think maybe it's a network effect. And even if your friends don't have iPhones and their friends don't have iPhones, there are a lot of iPhones out there on the edge of your network. And so it may be encroaching back. Right, right. But this I, is true because I tried it on the interns earlier. I said, come in here now without the period, and they didn't even come. But when I said, come in here now, period, they knew they were in trouble again, and they all flocked right in, and they were scared. Oh, really? really? Who was this? The Speckgram interns. interns. Oh, the interns, of course. The they, interns. They're very sensitive to this. <laughs> they are. Did they give you their consent to this little experiment? Oh, heck no. We don't have human <laughs> subjects' concerns internally to Speckgram. It's okay. No, all right. Yes, all right. Yeah, my bad. <laughs> because <laughs> they're classed as employees, although I think they're actually indentured servants. servants. <laughs> or or pets. <laughs> In all the countries where it's legal, they are indentured servants, yes. <laughs> Plus, the headquarters building got extraterritoriality back in 27, so we're fine. <laughs> I was a little skeptical and I did some digging around. And one of the things that I found was that, of course, it makes sense that texting and IM and things like that are, are more informal for people who use them regularly and are, like Sherry said, texting natives. Mm -hmm. And one way of looking at this maybe is that by using capital letters, final punctuation and all that kind of stuff, it's a switch in tone. Yeah. And so mm -hmm. it's like your mom calling you by your full name or switching between tu and usted or tu and vu mm -hmm. and that the tone shift signals the negative emotions. The punctuation is just a marker for that tone shift. I thought that was an interesting idea. Yeah, yeah. I thought about that too. You know, you probably know that one of my interests is prosody, intonation, <laughs> tone of voice and, and all that, right? And I've always been battling against the very poor reproduction of tone and intonation that print allows. Mm -hmm. Printed language allows, right? So what I thought was interesting about this article, regardless of whether the period actually means what they say it means, was that because it's a printed medium, what can we do? What can we do to quickly tell other people the way we're actually feeling when we're talking to them? Right. I mean, that's where smileys and frowny faces. Exactly. And... I, mean, I mean, the period is the new emoticon, like Sherry mm. Um, mm -hmm. suggested also. That's what I thought too. I thought it's interesting. I've written a bit about this as well, how texting sort of not disrupts the rules of the language, but creates a separate set of rules because it's a completely new medium. Mm -hmm. 
So we're trying it out. We don't know, right? We're creating it on the go. I thought it was interesting anyway. Yeah. Yeah. Despite the fact that I was skeptical, I actually found some really cool evidence that it's true. Yeah. Besides the weeping interns, you mean? (laughs) Well, you never know. There's so many reasons why they could be crying. (laughs) (laughs) One flogging is all, where, where, human rights, where, where, whatever. Cry babies. (laughs) (laughs) So I found this cool blog post by a guy named Tyler Schneblin. And it looks at the correlation between final punctuation and emoticons and the phrases, love you, miss you, and what I will boldarize as F you. Mm-hmm. And so he looked at a period, exclamation point, question mark, ellipses, smiley face, frowny face, and final punctuation for a communication in a corpus of 9 million directed social media interactions with those three phrases, right? And so not surprisingly, exclamation and smiley face correlate positively with love you, frowny face and question mark correlate negatively. For miss you, there's a very strong positive correlation with the frowny face and a weak one Mm -hmm. with the smiley face, which I guess is some sort of bittersweet thing, and a strong positive correlation with an exclamation point. And then for F you... There's a very strong negative correlation with the smiley face. (laughs) (laughs) What do you know? Ah, science. There's actually a strong negative correlation with the frowny face, because I guess you're not being, you know, kind of silly and that kind of thing. The frowny face is not strong enough for that, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's not silly and it's not strong enough. Yeah. Right. And then there's a weak positive correlation with the exclamation point. Oh, and ellipses and question marks are correlated negatively with everything in those three cases. Mm -hmm. Okay. So that, that makes a lot of sense. And so it sort of, to me, verifies that this is a reasonable approach. Now, here's the crazy part. The period had a very strong negative correlation with love you and miss you and a strong positive correlation with F you. Awesome. Mm. That's really Mm. great. Yeah. (laughs) So my conclusion is, despite the fact that I have been very clear that this usage is morally wrong. (laughs) It is, however. (laughs) Yeah, there are a lot of people out there who don't want to be right. Yeah, right. right. So... It's a new default tray. Accept it. (laughs) But we still need, though, now a replacement mark of some sort. I mean, I was thinking about this and I had a couple ideas. One is to use the tilde because they've been piling up. (laughs) We not only don't use them in English, we take them off of borrowed words and put them in the back room, you know. So they've been piling up and, you know, you got to watch that because if you build up a critical mass, they can kind of implode and then nasalize half the continent. (laughs) It happened to Portuguese. (laughs) All for Tilda's bill. Put Tilda's everywhere. Yeah, Yeah. you're trying to patch it. (laughs) You should start picking those off, Madalena. You really could pick them off one at a time. I'm not worried about the buildup because actually certain numerical types like me are setting them free and repurposing them for approximation. Yes, that's right. Mm-hmm. So you'll say there were tilde 30 people there means there were approximately 30 people. You're not using them nearly as fast as they're piling up, though, let me tell you. <laughs> I don't know. How often do people use uh, borrowing that had a tilde? Spanish borrowings that had tilde. Senor, yeah, how many are there? Know, oh, there's lots. They're all over the place. And they've got periods after them. <laughs> there's tomato, for example, which but I don't know. Tomato didn't, didn't have a tilde on it. <laughs> it. No, it was tomato, wasn't it? I'm sure of it. Tomato. Oh, period. Mato. Tomato. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> no. No, was. no. No. Tomato. Today I tomato. That's, that's not disputatious at all. Yeah. Hmm. The other idea I had was the half raised period, which <laughs> would have the advantage of making text look more like medieval text, too. 
Mm. Which is really popular with the kids these days, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Why are we wanting to do that again? <laughs> if you write it in unchill, that would look nice. <laughs> that would look gorgeous, yeah. <laughs> look no, no, it would unseal. Unseal would look elegant, but unchill is just unchill sounds too much like lunch. <laughs> yeah, it does unseal tilde. Wow. That's a good band name, isn't it? It's a new phrase. I love it. Unseal tilde. <laughs> so this author mentioned Twitter as one of the things that's, you know, it's a force against punctuation. So let me just ask the assembled company here, which of you are on Twitter? I am. That was two, correct? Bill? Uh, I have a Twitter account and I've posted on it before, but <laughs> I think I'm not really sort of with the whole thing because apparently you're supposed to just dash things off instead of spending 20 minutes carefully crafting them and then not posting them because you think you could word them better with more time. And have you ever <laughs> in your life had an utterance that was less than 140 characters? <laughs> I think at the dentist. Uh, <laughs> I'm afraid that when I was doing it a lot, I started to think in 140 character chunks. Mm, mm. Well, that's better than I do, and I've never used Twitter. <laughs> You've exceeded my short-term memory already. So just to answer the question, I don't really use Twitter, but I do manage the Specgram Twitter feed. Uh, don't let on how that's managed. <laughs> All right, I mismanaged the Twitter feed. <laughs> Those of us that don't use Twitter have no pressure to drop our punctuation because we we, we can use all the characters we want, right? <laughs> well, they also said an instant messaging, I think. They probably did. What's that referred to? Well, they said online, online chat, chat yeah. and, and texting. I don't know, instant message, text. I don't know what those whole things they overlap in my head. They're all the same, right? They're all the same. SMS. No, well, no. I mean, you don't, instant messaging doesn't have to be with. There's no there's limit, no limit right? yeah. This is a family program. Are we going to talk? That just sounds off-putting. What? The whole SMS thing. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I thought this whole thing maybe had to do with people texting by dictation. Because if you don't say the punctuation, then Siri, for example, won't put it oh, in. Oh, that kind of dictation. I thought maybe you, you had your secretary there. <laughs> oh, well, I do have one of the interns following me around for whenever I wish to <laughs> expound on something and they have to tweet it for me. But I tried Victor Borga audio punctuation <laughs> on Siri and she didn't mm. like it. She did sort of think it was an end mark in that she stopped listening to me after I went at her. <laughs> Which I thought was kind of snippy of her. So now the lack of punctuation is snippy. Yeah, well, in her, yeah, well, yeah. From Electronica, mm. I think, yeah, maybe. I think that when the computers come to take over, I do think that they should be required to use proper punctuation at all times. I think part of the idea of taking over is you get to decide what you're going to do, mm. and those who are taking over just have to suck it up. I suppose. Mm. <laughs> so I, I wouldn't count on proper punctuation from our new AI overlords. Oh, no. <laughs> Another disappointment. All right. I think maybe that's enough of that. Could be. Can't we come Period. up with a better way to close these discussions <laughs> off? I think someone should just say, fine. Period. Period. Exactly. Yes. Exactly. All right. You just did. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor to discuss how linguistics can lend a helping hand. Fine. Period. <laughs> Language Made Difficult is brought to you by the Speculative Grammarian Essential Guide to Linguistics. Specgram's Essential Guide to Linguistics is still speculative, still grammatical, still essential, and still about linguistics. But now, it's also available as a PDF for your favorite tablet or e-reader. 
Whether in physical or electronic form, the guide is jam-packed with humor and wit, both scholarly and unrefined. From the phonetic to the phonemic, from the morphological to the mordant, from the syntactic to the scatological, Specgram and the Essential Guide to Linguistics have something for everyone. Estimates of humor content are based on the typical experience of five to seven years grinding away in grad school, only to leave disappointed, disgruntled, disaffected, and without a degree. Your mileage and humor content may vary. Content packaged by wit, not volume. Some settling may occur during shipping. Okay, welcome back to Language Made Difficult. Well, a few episodes ago, we decided that as linguists, we needed to turn the tables on physicists and biologists and statisticians and all these self-professed helpful people who have been invading our field lately and telling us how uh, we've missed out on all sorts of basic observations that we could have made if only we had applied their tools. And we're kind of tired of that. So we decided to turn the tables on them and make some suggestions for how to help these other fields in maybe better ways than the way that they helped us. So if I recall correctly, I think we said biology already has morphology, so it needs to add some kind of syntax. And physics should be using optimality diagrams to explain string theory. And I think we were going to suggest that linguistics just give pragmatics to some needy discipline, but we couldn't think of anybody who would want it. (laughs) So that took care of how linguistics can help other academic disciplines. Well, today we're going to go a step farther and lend a helping hand to other areas of life outside of academia. No plain old ivory tower for us. Well, let me start by suggesting, and uh, this is one that will resonate with all of the sports fans among us, including especially Trey. (laughs) Football coaches, American football coaches, specifically offensive coordinators, are the ones who are responsible for drawing up the plays. The running back will go this way, the handoff, the fake handoff, the uh, receivers will go out this way. They need to know that lines may not cross. (laughs) (laughs) This will tremendously simplify and make much more effective the average football play. Maybe that's why I don't like sports. (laughs) Because they allow lines (laughs) to cross. cross, (laughs) So, okay, well, there's one simple suggestion. Now, uh, who else has something you'd like to share? I would just like to say, Keith, that I was very impressed with all that sports vocab you were just using there. That's really something. Oh, well... um, It's a foreign language to me. What are you getting at? (laughs) I just want to commend you for the hours and hours of research you put into these introductions. That's (laughs) That's right. (laughs) I spent four hours on Wikipedia to prepare that one. (laughs) (laughs) Well, this might be somewhat disputatious, really, but I would like to lend a hand to those people, and I'm just going to call them people because this is sort of more or less a family show, right? Who call you at work or at home and they try to sell you these deals where they gather you together and they say you can come to this free dinner and then they try and sell you life insurance. You know those people, right? Mm -hmm. And I think I can help them. I think syntax can help them. What they need is just to take any tree, just any tree at all, right? Whatever it is of a, preferably a really complex utterances with lots of sort of infills and you know, even something if you could, you could just, whatever, a really complicated verb phrase, and just pull that chart up. And then at the bottom of it, instead of the little, with all the little nodes crossed, you put little dollar signs, right? And then down at the end, you just write a bunch of random words. And then you just stand there in front of the people and just trace their fingers along all these little dividing lines. And that will absolutely put everyone into a hypnotic trance because <laughs> I speak from some personal experience in syntax class. It just renders your mind a, a glaze. And then having made all the audience into robots, they could sell them whatever they wanted to sell them. So again, I'm not sure that that's ethical of me to really offer that kind of power to these people. But 
it is a way we could help if we chose to. You know, we just come up with the tools. We're not really responsible for the way people <laughs> use them. No, exactly. <laughs> I would suggest for non-professionals in the performing and visual arts, like music and painting and acting and so on, become familiar with the performance competence distinction. So, <laughs> oh, good. <laughs> so, like, I'm an excellent singer, but the notion of carrying a tune is a matter of performance and therefore is uninteresting. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds very good. I think we could apply that in education, too. <laughs> mm. Mm. The only thing I could think of is susceptible to the accusation that it's just reheating something. But I think we can help cookbook authors. Now, Paul, you already did that to some extent by applying stratificational grammar to macaroni and cheese recipes. But apparently that intimidated some cookbook authors because they weren't sure they could get the little squares right in the triangles. So I thought of something at a more abstract level. We help them condense their cookbooks by realizing that all dishes are really just expansions of ingredient heads. Mm. And there's only three mm. levels of expansion of these ingredient heads. And that lets us treat the heads as very general symbols, basically. Obviously, the major categories for cooking are solid, liquid, and spice, right? <laughs> this actually lets you condense an awful lot of recipes into very elegant ones like stuff and liquid on stuff. <laughs> With spice. Well, the thing is, the header on the description doesn't have modifiers or complements worked into it. The spice is obviously adjoining. It's getting merged in with the stuff oh. node. Mm -hmm. Yes, yes. You know, Bill, I thought you were going to suggest that they just take all the periods out of their cookbooks because they just sound too angry all the time. <laughs> and people would eat their food more if it sounded happier. Mm, I've seen some cookbooks that really need to make the point that that's not a suggestion that they're giving you, that you really need to follow it. <laughs> Ooh, you could sort of stratify your, your instructions. Some are sort of suggestion-like and others are for sure. Like, do preheat the oven, period. But, you know, <laughs> add spice, no period. So, Bill, I actually had almost this identical thought, but I took it in a slightly different direction. So I was thinking, I mean... It doesn't really matter what your ingredients are. You can give them sort of abstract names and then right, unitize right. them like a noun and a verb. And, you know, that doesn't really matter yeah. what that thing is that you're calling a noun. And so spice and starch and whatever, you can just say you need a spice and or five spices or whatever. But the important thing, the critical thing is that you can't just list them. The place where recipe books go wrong is they say, you know, all you need, you just give this list and no one is impressed by a list, right? What oh, we right, have learned in right. linguistics is that you need a diagram or a chart, preferably a chart with little hand arrows or something like that, right? <laughs> and then people will buy anything that has a scientific diagram on it, right? Uh, are you going to have a separate gusticon? <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, a lot of the complexities you just banish to the gusticon. <laughs> hmm. They're already moving towards this because if you look at modern cookbooks, <laughs> a lot of the headers say things like, this dish complements this other kind of dish, right? <laughs> so they're already giving you the co-occurrence specifications for it. Yeah, they're robbing you of choice. That's what they're doing. <laughs> <laughs> that is the purpose of a cookbook. <laughs> it, is a, it is a blow against freedom, isn't it? <laughs> 
But I think that may be a good thing, just like other constraints in language are a good thing. <laughs> in this model for the cookbook that you have, where do you put the constraints that are realized eventually that block, for example, chicken tartare? <laughs> uh, actually, it's not blocked because this goes back to your confidence performance distinction. <laughs> Cooking evolved completely independently from the aesthetics and digestive systems in humans. They're just accidentally associated with it. <laughs> Universal cooking is not constrained by these other cognitive systems, obviously. Right, right. The other thing about that is that no matter what comes out at the bottom, you can always slap the label fusion on it. And so it's, it's <laughs> right, always right. permissible output. Well, I was thinking it really ought to be an optimality matrix, right? So you can cook anything and you do cook everything. I think I have cooked most things. And then only one gets the pointy finger from the people who want to eat it. Yeah, the problem is that the cook assigning the pointy finger is not the same person necessarily as the consumers. Everything I cook gets the pointy finger, but then there are other pointy fingers in the house and they... Right, right. And they can be disputatious about it, right? They can be. Yeah. Mm. Uh, well, any other ideas anyone had? I actually have another one related to optimality theory. Mm. So we had a cartoon in the Great Linguistics Nerd Camp series by Bethany Carlson in the October issue, which is volume 171, number two, which demonstrated <laughs> how political analysis can benefit from optimality theory. In the cartoon, Marsha correctly predicted that Obama would win the presidency because unlike McCain, he has good hair. And unlike Oprah, he was party nominated. And unlike Marsha's duck, he is a celebrity. The little pointy finger ends up right there at Obama, and she correctly predicted the optimal candidate. Huh. Mm. I just yeah. like to point out that political science is not an academic subject. So, mm. <laughs> well, I wrote down that we should come up with some advice for politicians, but I couldn't think of any. <laughs> Fortunately, Bethany did it for us. You know, it also occurred to me just now that we need additional function words aboard the space shuttle. Because if you're going to be in zero G, I think you need new prepositions, don't you? Because mm. you can't just go, because you've got to get rid of above and below. You've got to kind of do a more... Oh, I think you just you switched to finish or something that has lots of, you know, adjoining and adjacent to and... Mm. I think what you want to do there is you want to take some of the Australian languages, and yeah, that's yeah, what you need. And you need to expand the system that they have, which is actually based on up to, I believe, up to 64 distinct compass points. Oh, right? there you it's, go. And so you have like your west leg and your east leg or your north leg and your south leg. So you can't have west and east in space. Right, right. So you have, you have earthward, earthward, sunward. Right. Well, you expand that to three-dimensional. Uh, instead of a, a circle, you expand it to a three-dimensional sphere. Mm, and you could have right. 64 squared, right? Um, not necessarily. That might be a few too many. <laughs> Y'all are going about this wrong, okay? <laughs> They're in the shuttle, right? That is a ship. In English, we metaphorically think of that as a ship. We have absolute tons of 16th and 17th century nautical vocabulary for every relation one could be into a ship. Yeah, you've got to have read Master and Commander. Yeah, it's abaft the shuttle, or it's, you know, mizzen mastwords from the shuttle, <laughs> and that kind of thing, which also gives you an excuse to talk like a pirate in space. <laughs> oh, oh, the wind! <laughs> I would like to point out that they don't fly the shuttles anymore. You may have missed that, but... Uh... That's because they've gone pirate. You don't know they're doing it. Well, I guess what I really must have meant was the space station, right? Ah, uh, so that must still, be what you meant. Sure, that would You be. could still do that like a shuttle. I mean, you know. That, that's like a galleon. They weren't very maneuverable. 
It's still moving. But being not familiar with this potential space pirate lingo as much as you are, does it really cover the case where something is coming at you (laughs) from the upper left quadrant of the sky? Because at least other ships certainly can only come at you from, you know, on the sea. (laughs) (laughs) I suppose a Leviathan could be coming up underneath. (laughs) Or Jaws. But you're not going to see that coming, yeah. Yeah, but you just use clock positions like normal. In, In relation to yourself. Yeah, you know, they're coming in at three o'clock off the port bow, Captain. You know, that kind of thing. Uh, If you're going to do that, you know, I think we've gotten too far from linguistics. I mean, it should be something like they're coming in at the adverb node. (laughs) (laughs) We could just paint a giant tree. We're back to painting the giant trees. Yeah, those trees trees are good for everything. The crew has to stay awake during the battle. (laughs) (laughs) And then we could have space particles. Oh, oh. Uh, you just define the universe, I think. (laughs) Well, I've got one more. I think we could help hobbyists like stamp collectors whose pursuits are seen as dull and boring by introducing them to the idea of features and feature bundles, which will give them new schemes with which to organize their collections that they've obsessively amassed and give them more, just in general, more details to obsess over. But most importantly, it will make their fields more interesting by becoming more disputatious by giving them things to argue about, right? So nothing would liven up the biennial meeting of the North American Conference of Concerned Philatelists like a fistfight over whether a given stamp is plus or minus rare. (laughs) Dispute. How can you tell if a stamp is a bachelor or not? (laughs) In the mail? (laughs) Yeah, that's the problem. But once you establish that, they're all unmarried, probably. Oh, you know what? My dad is a retired letter carrier, and there is actually such a thing as marrying the mail. What? <laughs> so, you know, I used to get those crappy circulars nobody wants and just throw away. Yes. You're not supposed to put a letter inside of that. That's called marrying the mail because someone might just Ooh. look at the circular and throw it out. So right. you do have unmarried mail. All of your mail should, in fact, be bachelors. Unmarried mail. Oh, right. my goodness. Yeah. Married mail is not allowed. It's plus unmarried and plus mail. That is is all I can stand of this discussion. (laughs) (laughs) So is the Pope a stamp? (laughs) In the woods. (laughs) In in the woods. (laughs) All right. Anything else, Madalena? Did you have any? uh... Yeah, I had one. It's a bit far away from, I think, from what you've said, and far away from trees and space and that sort of thing. That's probably good. (laughs) It's very near my daily concerns and stuff, which is, I think it would be a good idea to introduce to the non-academic general public what we understand by emic and etic distinctions, you know, like Mm. emic and phonetic, right? Because much of my time is spent answering correspondence from worried parents and teachers teachers and clinicians wondering if their children are okay in the head because they speak several languages. Mm. And they say things like, uh, I think my child is developing or my client is developing a split personality. She expresses herself in completely different ways when she speaks uh, Nahuatl or Portuguese, (laughs) that sort of thing, right? So I always have to explain to them, listen, listen, one thing is a thing and then something else is the context where that thing is, right? Mm. And uh, that's the emic and the etic thing. And multilinguals use their languages differently because that's what they're there for. Mm. 
they can't be equivalent in any way, because if they could, then we wouldn't need all the languages that we do need. <laughs> it would be enough with one, right? <laughs> Dominant languages and uh, multilinguals should use all the languages perfectly in all situations and so on and mm. so forth. So I think this would be a very, very useful distinction to introduce to the general public. You know, you are what you are, regardless of the way you look wherever you are at a particular place, in that case, regardless of the particular language that you use. Mm. That, I think, is non-disputatiously true. I was going to say, I agree with what you said, but I think the particular case of Nahuatl and Portuguese is one that you should avoid. You shouldn't raise your kids speaking both Nahuatl and Portuguese, just no. those two languages, because you're going to walk around going, I have this word for tomato, and I need to give it to English, and I don't know which <laughs> language to use. Um, yes, unless we want to talk about chocolate, which is a favorite subject, of course. <laughs> yes. <That's all. laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I guess that's all the time we have for Language Made Difficult. Thanks to our guest, Madalena, for hanging out with me and the rest of the Ling Nerds this time. Thank you for having me. And join us next time when we take an in-depth look at conservative generalized quantifiers who try to explain away claims of their homography as misunderstandings arising from having a wide scope. Hola, muchachos. <laughs> <laughs> Hola. Hola, muchachos. Hola. <laughs> this creepy voice to sound really macho, right? <laughs> now everybody's happy. Okay. I've decided I can't beat you, right? So um, <laughs> You'll have to join us. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. So call me whatever you want. I'll be happy with whatever you call me. <laughs> <sighs> I try. <laughs> if we had particles... It would be so much easier. Sentence final particles. That's what languages need. Well, we have them. We just don't say them. Well, we don't use them enough, you know. Yeah. I mean, the Canadians have started using them. <laughs> That's true. So, got it. Okay. All right. Anybody got anything else? I didn't even really have those ones that, you know, I. <laughs> <laughs> We've already exceeded our preparation.